Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, in beautiful, pristine, bucolic, Cherokee, North Carolina, where I'm actually playing poker in the casino here, Harrah's Cherokee. It's really nice. I had some comedy gigs in the deep south of these United States and decided to make a little diversion from the comedy and spend a little time at the poker table with my good friends and new friends here in Cherokee, North Carolina. It is beautiful. If you've never been here, I really recommend it. It's a very nice place. The uh, casino is lovely. The rooms in the hotel are very nice. And uh, the casino itself is, is quite spacious and quiet. And I think that you guys would like it. The action here is really good. As you may have heard from our own Derek Killingbird Tenbush on previous episodes, you guys know that he lives down here in the South. Just by virtue of the fact that he can't talk to you without saying, how y'all doing? That's our KB. Anyway, there is some, I don't want to call it backlash, but some people uh, had a question for me about something I said on last week's episode, which you, if you were listening, we talked about a number of poker news items, and we also discussed the uh, interview between Joey Ingram and Ebony Kenny, and in that discussion, I mentioned that I am a huge fan of free speech, but at the same time, I thought that some of the chat that was happening during that interview should have been censored. So some of our listeners had questions for me about how I can be pro-free speech, but also pro-censorship at the same time. And I want to be very clear about this. Uh, You know, I have talked on this and other podcasts, most notably the Thinking Poker podcast, in defense of comedians and of parody and of anyone who is intending to get a laugh. And as Ebony mentioned in that very interview and in the uh, aftermath thereof, Intent matters. I agree with her on that. I think that intent is important. A comedian who's standing on a stage is obviously trying to get laughs. I mean, that is the job. Assuming it's a professional comedian, uh, that person, believe me, is trying desperately to get laughs. And if he or she says something that offends anyone, it's not meant to do that. So I think that the intent is important. Uh, in this case, the the only things that I thought should have been censored were the racially charged comments, use of the N-word, for example. I don't think that a guest doing an interview on a podcast should have to read racist language in the chat while she is being interviewed. And I stand by that. I think that there's a difference between free speech and hate speech. And when something clearly crosses the line into hate speech, I am adamantly opposed to it and I am in favor 
of the censorship of it. And I realized that you might get into some gray area. Well, who's to decide what is hate speech and what isn't? Well, I, I'm willing to accept that problem if it means anything that we all adamantly agree and, and we, we can't find anyone who disagrees is hate speech. I think that should definitely be deleted. And then we can discuss whether other things that are in that gray area belong in that area or in the protected area of free speech. Look, this is America, but just like you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater and claim that you're exercising free speech, we do have protections for marginalized groups against this sort of thing. And I am in favor of censoring that. If I had my own YouTube channel where I interviewed people, I would instruct my moderators, do not censor the chat unless there is something that you are sure is hate speech. And I think that that line was crossed and that is the only censorship of which I personally am in favor. As always, I want your opinions. Let's keep the conversation going. I'm on Twitter, at Clayton Comic, and I'd love to hear from you. Uh, something happened this week. They had a meeting. The Tournament Directors Association met, and they talked about updating the official rules of tournament poker. And one area that I think was interesting, they addressed the problem of stalling without really solving the problem of stalling. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, many times in a live poker tournament, especially the really big ones, like the WSOP main event, for example, players are so interested in climbing the ladder because every little pay jump is worth so much to them in terms of real dollars that many times players will play extremely slowly, pretending to have a decision before they fold jack four off suit from under the gun, things like that. Like blatant stalling will happen in a tournament like that where people are just really clock watching and trying to figure out, well, if I can wait for two more people to bust, I'm going to increase my pay jump and that sort of thing. So that is a problem, especially for televised tournaments because nobody wants to watch you sit there on TV for 20 minutes trying to figure out whether or not you should fold Jack-4 offsuit under the gun. And it is a problem, but it's also a problem in non-televised events because they're just, you know, there has to be some respect for the spirit of the game. But if there's nothing in the rules, then there's nothing to enforce. So here's the new rule as it stands in the TDA handbook that stands for Tournament Directors Association. And I'm quoting here, the House should clearly announce intention to reduce stalling so that players understand timely play is expected. It's recommended that each house establish creative methods for reducing stalling. Some methods successfully used by TDA member houses include random table breaks instead of table draws, using a fixed number of hands per level, going orbit for orbit, soft hand for hand, and adding a shot clock. So this is directly from the new TDA rules, PR 19, whatever that means. So look, I don't really think this is a solution. It's actually more like a coaching session for tournament directors out there. Like, here's what you should try to do. Uh, look, I think that this should be a uniform across the board thing. 
big announcement. Okay, guys, we're not going to go hand for hand yet, but if, if the stalling continues, we will. So if there's someone at your table who's stalling, let's start calling the clock on that person now, unless you all want us to go hand for hand from now until the end of the tournament. Some kind of clear warning to all players so that players will start to enforce the timely play rule themselves, I think would be a huge step in the right direction. And obviously, any poker tournament that doesn't have a shot clock, they should they should implement some kind of shot clock so that players don't even have to call for the clock in the first place. The dealers should be empowered to put that clock on and anyone who stalls for more than 30 seconds, especially pre-flop, that should be an automatic dead hand. There's never a reason to take more than 30 seconds before the flop. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And especially if it becomes chronic, that uh, just needs to be addressed. But yeah, at least having something in writing that says that creative measures can be used. Like if we're going by TDA rules, then any tournament director could say, well, my creative measure was I'm putting a clock on just this one player that he has to make his decision in 10 seconds because he's already abused the timely play rule way too much to this point. So now we get to punish him with creative measures. So yeah, I'd like to see something a little bit more concrete, but at least it's a step in the right direction so that players can't say there's no rule against stalling. All right, well, as we mentioned on last week's podcast, I am still feeling the afterglow of my incredible and dominating victory in the $3 Killing Bird home game on as featured on Twitch, where if you were following along with KB a couple of Tuesdays ago, you got to see me ride my wave to poker glory against some of the best in the world in the $3 buy-in. KHG, as it's known. I, I think I got, yeah, Killing Bird Home Game, right? Yeah, KHG. So I thought that maybe I could go over a hand or two that I played in that highly prestigious tournament. So it's a weekly home game on ACR, and the cost to enter is $3.30. It's a PKO, which means every time you bust somebody, you win some amount of money. So uh, here we go. Uh, we're not in the money yet, but we're getting close. I think they paid seven places, and we had 13 remaining in the tournament. The blinds were 300, 600 with a 75 ante per player. Now, my table is down to five players as we just lost one, and we haven't had his seat replaced yet. So although there are 13 players left, we are at a five-handed table for the moment. We are currently sitting fifth in chips out of the remaining 13 with 15,000, which is well above, well above the 10,000 average. Let's see, the button opens in this hand off of a 17 big blind stack. He's got 10,000 behind and he min raises to 1,200. And then the small blind folds and hero Clayton is in the big blind holding the seven of spades, six of spades. Now, this opponent has an M of nine. He's got 17 big blinds in his stack, and we have him well covered. You can actually make a case for shoving here with the seven, six suited. Presumably, this player's range for opening on the button at a five-handed table is pretty wide, and his HUD stats 
reflect that as he is running 32-23. Now, that's only over 37 hands, so who knows how much stock we can actually put into that. But yeah, those are pretty loose numbers there. So yeah, you could absolutely shove with this if you want to. I'm okay with calling or three bet shoving, but I'm not okay with folding. We're getting a great price and we have a playable hand. So I decide to call here and we're going to see a flop with the seven of spades, six of spades with 3,075 in the middle and the button being the effective stack with 9K. The flop comes 10 of clubs, eight of clubs, four of spades. So 10, eight, four, we have seven high, but we also have a backdoor flush draw as well as a double gutter. Did anyone out there miss the fact that I don't have just one gut shot holding the seven, six on the 10, eight, four flop? So I decide to lead out. Now this is a play that I will make when I flop a flush draw on this board. Um, I may also do it occasionally with a set, hoping to get raised by a player that thinks I couldn't have a strong hand when I lead out, assuming that I'm going to have a flush draw. It does kind of look like I have flopped a flush draw here and I'm trying to see the next card cheaply and try to make a hand. So that is what it's supposed to look like. That is what it will look like to most of my opponents. And because of that, I need to make the same play with a strong hand once in a while as well. Something like pocket fours, which I may have decided to just call with before the flop and now flop the third nuts. Go ahead and lead out. Try to make it look like I'm doing this, exactly what I'm doing in this hand, which is actually trying to see the next card cheaply. You can protect that range by occasionally making the same play with a very strong hand like a set or maybe top two pair. So in this spot, I make it 600, a minimum bet, and my opponent decides to raise me, he makes it 2,000. Now, I really don't like this play by my opponent regardless of what he has. Again, he's only got 15 big blinds behind. I'm betting one big blind here. There aren't too many hands that he should be making such a small bet, small raise with here on the flop. If he wants to raise, I think he should commit to the pot, maybe even go all in if he thinks that he's trying to protect his one pair versus my probable flush draw, then shoving makes a lot more sense because I would be priced out in that spot with most of my flush draws. But raising to 2,000 doesn't really do anything. I guess when I have nothing, I would fold, but I'm certainly not folding a flush draw for this price, and I'm never folding my double gutter with a backdoor flush draw for that price either. So it's a pretty easy call for me. Um, in my shoes, we can also shove if we don't believe that he's ever raising for value uh, and then end up taking it down with the seven high. But against this opponent, although he is pretty aggressive, I think that he's usually going to have something here when he makes that raise to 2K. So I call and come on, let's make a straight. Instead, with 7075, 7,075 in the middle, and the uh, villain in this hand with just a pot size bet behind, about 7K himself, the turn comes the four of hearts. And so now our board is 10 of clubs, eight of clubs, four of spades, four of hearts. Hero holding the seven, six 
of spades. So this is not the card we were looking for at all. Uh, I decide to just check and hope that my opponent checks behind, giving me another shot at potentially winning this hand by making a straight with a five or a nine. And that's exactly what happens. He does check behind, and now I get another pull. The river comes, the ace of clubs, and I am now sitting here on the river with nothing. I just have seven high, and that's almost never going to be good enough to win the pot. It's almost the nut low. So I decide to bluff. Uh, the ace of clubs is a particularly good card for me to choose as part of my bluffing range because, number one, it does complete the front door flush on the flop. It's also an ace, and it's unlikely that my opponent has an ace. So when he raised me on the flop with a hand like 9-8, for example, he will not be happy to see an ace on the river. So it's a perfect scare card because it's not only an ace, but it also completes the flush on the flop, which is a very likely holding of mine for having led the flop and checked the turn after having called the flop raise. So it makes sense that I would have a flush. Uh, I only fire 4,100 into the 70-75 pot. And I now think that my sizing is a big mistake because remember guys, this is a PKO. We're almost at the end. This guy has like $5 worth of progressive bounties for me to collect. So what am I doing not going for his whole stack if I have the flush? I need to get after that stack. And if I did really have a strong hand in this spot, because he has just a pot size bet left, I would have made a pot size bet myself, trying to win the pot and also collect that bounty. I made a mistake here, but I got away with it. My opponent folds. But let's think about this sizing on the river, guys. It doesn't make sense for me to ever bet 4,000 with a strong hand. So it's really just, I was trying to save myself a couple thousand in case I, my bluff gets called. So yeah, really think about that when you're playing in a PKO, especially small stakes, the kind that have a lot of fishy players like myself that might not use the right bet sizing when they're bluffing. <laughs> the one that they should always use when they're not bluffing would have been a pot size bet that's also equivalent to my opponent's remaining stack. There's no reason, there's no hand that should bet 4,100 in this situation. I can't name one. Can you? Let me know on Twitter, at ClaytonComic. Uh, I want to tell you guys about the rest of this tournament. We already know that I ran to glory at the end and achieved that coveted first place trophy, which I'm sure Derek Tenbush has put in the mail for me. I haven't received it yet. I guess he didn't do Overnight Express, but I'm sure it's coming. Um, but before I tell you about the rest of the tournament, I want to tell you guys about our sponsor, which is SitesOptimized.com. I've been talking about this one for a couple weeks now. There's a guy named Danny who I met in Vegas this past summer in the World Series of Poker. He told me he's a, a fan of the podcast. He was a really fun guy to play poker with. And he mentioned that he has this website, SitesOptimized.com. It's his business. Um, what they do is they build websites for people. And by the way, if you're a listener to this podcast, you can get a mock-up, a, a dry run, a trial version of a website. He'll do it for you for free. 
just to see if you like his work or not. So that right there should be enough to get you to go to sitesoptimized.com and talk to Danny about doing that and let him know you heard about it right here on the TPE podcast. Um, They also do SEO services, which is when the algorithm helps Google or whatever search engine help you get your business to the top or closer to the top and optimize your position so that more customers will see you than are looking at your competition. He's very, very good at what he does. I can endorse Danny. I've checked out some of his work and it's excellent. So visit sitesoptimized.com. His prices are reasonable and he's a friend of the podcast. All right, so just to finish the story, after that not so brilliant bluff that I got away with making a terrible sizing choice on in the last hand, I went on to win a very big coin flip where I just got it all in with pocket jacks versus ace queen with 10 players left and I won the flip, I beat ace queen with my jacks and I took over the chip lead and then I was at the final table which I arrived at with the second highest stack, someone took the lead away from me, Um, things went okay and we got down to three handed, three of the best players that were in this tournament when we were down to three and we had very, very even stacks. I don't know if I've ever seen stacks quite this even online. One player had 51,900. Another player had 52,300. And I had 53,100. So for all intents and purposes, we had the same exact stack when we were down to three-handed. The blinds were 1,200, 2,400 with a 250 ante per player. Uh, so there was 4350 in the middle. So all of us had an M of about 12 or 13. Or if you prefer, 22, 23-ish big blinds. On the button, a player named Marinico85. And if you're listening, shout out to Marinico85. Congrats on cashing in the highly prestigious Derek Tenbush Killing Bird home game poker tournament on America's Card Room. Uh, he limps in on the button, which I don't think he should be doing with pretty much any hand. Um, there aren't that many strategies that I'm familiar with that involve limping three-handed at a PKO final table. But that's what he chooses to do. Um, he limps in his HUD stats. I don't have a ton of hands on him, but I did have 100, which starts to get a little bit more significant. But he's running 39-14. Uh, and so he limps in. And with a 39-14, you would expect him to be limping maybe a little bit more often than he should. And I'm in the small blind. I've got an ace of spades, eight of clubs. Not a great hand, but three-handed, it is certainly worth a raise. I decide to go for a large raise sizing here. The reason being, I don't mind taking it down. Ace-eight offsuit doesn't flop particularly well. The big blind, uh, hooligan 420 is a particularly strong opponent on my left. I'd love to just at least get him out of this pot so I can play heads up with my ace eight versus Marinico 85. So that was my thinking, and I made it 10,350, which I thought might be enough of a raise to get some of the riffraff out of there. Um, And sure enough, Hooligan 420 does fold, and my opponent in this hand, the button limper Marinico 85 decides to call so we are going to see a flop again hero holding 
the ace of spades, eight of clubs, and now with 23,850 in the middle, the flop comes, ace of hearts, king of hearts, queen of diamonds. So ace, king, queen with two hearts. The pot has 23,850 in it. The players each have about 42,000 remaining in their stacks, so the SPR is less than two. And what do I always say about having an SPR of under three? Guys, if you flop top pair with that SPR, it is almost always a mistake to fold at any point having the top pair and such a small stack to pot ratio. So I decide to go ahead and commit to this pot. I down bet as we used to say, I see bet 71.25 into 23,850. So, you know, 30% pot here, very small bet. And Marinico85 does something very unorthodox and click min raises me to 14,250. And at that point I said, you know what? This guy has been a little bit erratic with his play. His post-flop aggression is six. Now, we talked about this last week, but a, a typical professional level P PFA is like around two, two and a half. So this guy is very aggressive after the flop. And it's measured by when you have an opportunity to check or bet, you usually bet. And when you have an opportunity to call or raise, you usually raise. So again, like normally you might have a two or 2.5 to one ratio. This guy has a six to one ratio. Against a player like that, having put in so much of my stack already and having flopped top pair, three-handed with ace-eight, there's just no chance I'm folding. I go all in, and I'm thinking, please don't snap call with jack-10. <laughs> and he doesn't. He folds. And I went on to win the tournament. So I thought those were two of the more interesting spots from the $3.30 buy-in highly prestigious killing bird home game the khg on acr and that'll do it for this episode hope you guys enjoyed it if you did please give us a good rating on spotify or apple podcasts right now we have a 5.0 rating on spotify with 88 unique different users having cast a vote and i know that a lot of those are people that are listening right now and i just want to say to each and every one of you thank you so much because it really does help with the algorithm if anybody types in poker that makes it that much more likely that they will see tournament poker edge at or near the top of their list speaking of seo <laughs> yeah so speaking of seo visit sitesoptimized.com for all of your website and seo needs and for everyone here at tournament poker edge Fletcher, thank you so much for listening. I wanna hold them like they do in Texas plays. Fold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me. Lock in intuition, play the cards with babes to start. And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart.
It's not rough, it isn't fun, fun Oh, whoa, whoa. 